Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. This is week one of the Advent season. This is the, the week, the day of hope. Our scripture for today is Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar in, in incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. As we light the candle of hope, let's remember being a young child and waiting expectantly for your birthday, vacation, or Christmas. How do you feel while you're waiting? What activities did you do while you were waiting? As we light this candle, let's remember young children who have a hard time waiting, just as Zachariah and Elizabeth waited expectantly for their son John, who would be known as the baptizer. In the scripture, did the angel's words frighten Zechariah or give him hope? In ancient times, just like today, there were people righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands. There were people praying earnestly for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus wants us to prepare our hearts so that we too are always ready to repent and receive him as our Lord and Savior. When John was born, no one expected an old couple like Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a baby. But with God, all things are possible and perfected in God's timing. As we prepare for the Christmas season, be open to God's surprises in our life and prepare our hearts so that we are ready to welcome the Savior of our world. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message of hope 
and all the many blessings you have given us. Prepare our hearts to repent of sin, pardon our sins, and save us in the name of Jesus. Amen. The one thing that Thanksgiving always reminds me of, other than the fact that it's a day of grace where diets are concerned, is that it's the Thursday before the season of Advent begins. Now, I know that there are a few mistaken souls out there that believe that you should put up your Christmas tree before Thanksgiving. We'll forgive them. But this is the time of year as we approach the altar of God when we remember the longing of the people of God before the coming of their Messiah. Now, we are blessed and privileged in, in our generation to be a people that knew about Jesus from the time that we were infants on. But what this season does is it teaches us and it reminds us of what it means to be in that longing. What it means to reflect upon the believers of ages past in their desire for a Savior, in their desire to see the Messiah of God, in their desire for a new covenant that would free them from the shackles of sin and from the fear of condemnation before a holy God. It's something that we need to keep in mind because just as they were in longing so long ago, the season of Advent also reminds us that we are in longing now. Only instead of longing for the first coming of the Messiah, we long for His second. Instead of longing for a Christ that, whose face we do not know, we long to see our Master face to face. To hear from His lips, well done, my good and faithful servant. To see the Prince of Peace realize that title. Now, there are four virtues that we concentrate on the four weeks approaching Christmas. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And all of them reflect back the, the longing of the Messiah from the Old Testament. So we're going to be taking a lot of time to look through the prophets to understand what they were going through, what the people of God were going through before the coming of our Savior. Today, in fact, we're looking at the works of Isaiah. But there are a few things that as Christians that we need to talk about before we get into the books of the prophets. Namely, what is biblical prophecy? Please write this down because there are many horrifying misconceptions when it comes to prophecy in the Bible. Why? Because we come from a very Roman mindset when it comes to prophecy. We think of prophecy as those that... Uh, witnessed the play Macbeth, that you went before someone, a practitioner of magic, and they gave you this mystical riddle that you had to solve, this thing which can is ambiguous at best, prediction fulfillment, not always in your favor. Biblical prophecy isn't about that way. In the Jewish mindset, it's not about, a, it's not about someone asking for a future cast. In biblical prophecy, it's about pattern, understanding where we are in the story of God. And more often than not, when an Old Testament prophet writes something, he, he writes 
giving a reflection of the past to tell you where you are in the present. And some of the things that he's talking about is a forecast for the future. Prophecy is given to us by a God who exists outside the constraints of time. He is omniscient, he is omnipresent, and there isn't an omni for it, but he exists at all points of time at the same time. Anytime that you read a biblical prophecy, it affects both the present audience that he's writing to, as well as a forecast for something that is going to happen in the future. That's why a lot of people steer clear of biblical prophecy, even though it should mean something to us, particularly for us as Christians. Because it seems confusing, because he's writing to an audience right in front of them, but a lot of times what he's pinning down isn't just for them, it's for the generations that will come to pass after them. And again, truth through patterns in history. That's why more often than not, when you hear a prophet speak in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord thy God, who brought thee forth from the land of Egypt, or who judges the, the create, who judges all of the creation, all the just and the unjust. He gives a title of himself reflecting who he is, who he was, and who he will stand as in the future. And it's often written as poetry. That's why when you look at the Old Testament, you'll usually find these very long, narrow columns. Because the prophet is writing to you in a poem. So with all that out of the way, turn with me if you would in your copy of God's Word to... Isaiah, the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 8. Isaiah is preaching at a time in Israel's history when the people of God have forgotten who God is. They have forgotten about the sovereignty of God. They've forgotten about their accountability to God. They've forgotten that the God that they serve is the only God, that He is King of kings and Lord of Lords, they have taken their eyes off of what is eternal and focused only on what is good for them in the here and now. Does that sound familiar? The word of the prophet begins when the prophet is frustrated. He has been preaching for generations. He's taught a school of prophets. He's mentored people in being able to go before God in person and to use through the gift of writing the ability to give an account of what God tells them to do faithfully. And the prophet, out of his frustration, hears this which echoes in his heart. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. The Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here I am in the children that the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord God Almighty who dwells in Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritualists who whisper and mutter, who should, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? So the people of God have forgotten about God. Instead of praying, they go to pagan altars. Instead of asking the prophets of God, they go to spiritualists, they go to witches, they go to wizards, they go to sorcerers. Practices of magic, they look at the stars for guidance. Sound familiar yet? They ask for wisdom for everywhere but the source of wisdom. 
And the prophet is getting frustrated by this, and God is getting frustrated with it as well. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. They are in darkness, in other words. The darkness of their own self-imposed ignorance. Distressed and hungry, they will roam throughout the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. This is human nature. We want God to be the way that we are. We don't want the Christ. We want a Christ that we redraw for ourselves. The Church of Iceland, we know, has already recast an image of Christ for themselves to make him more appealing. To make him more open. In other words, they've taken the Jewish Messiah and they've drawn him to be someone who's in their image, in their likeness, under their wants, under their guises, instead of the Christ who challenges us to be better. They will roam through the land when they are finished. They will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God when God doesn't act the way that they want him to act. The God that they recast in their image instead of taking upon themselves His image. Then they curse the name of God. Verse 22, Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be, the day is coming, in other words, that there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And this is the part of the prophecy that you all have been hearing about since the time that you were children. Behold, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people. They rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoiced when uh, dividing the plunder. And he's talking about the here and now, the people that he's writing to. As far as the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In other words, the day is coming when the things of war will not matter anymore. They'll be let go of because they will be unnecessary. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on what? On his shoulders. Not a spiritual king, but the king of kings. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing him and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. May God in His blessing 
to the reading of his word this morning. There is no God but God. There is no plurality of gods. And a lot of the reason that this, this, this shouldn't even be something that has to be preached. This should be a given. This should be an understood. And yet we live in a world with such plurality that anything, including in a culture that would call itself Christian, anything goes. Now we've talked about idolatry and what it actually is ad nauseum, so I'm not going to get into that. But I think that one of the reasons that this has been allowed to proliferate is that we've forgotten the definition of God. Who God is. What the nature of God is. So let's settle that really quickly. And again, there's no way that you can put God in a box. There's no way you can ever hope to give a definition that includes every aspect of who God is. You can't put divinity into a book. But these things we can understand based on the book that He's given us. Number one, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Meaning that as far as all other powers in the universe is concerned, he has no rival. In fact, the person that we think of it as his opposite, meaning Satan himself, is not as powerful as God, can never be as powerful as God, will never be as powerful as God. He was a creation of God's. He is beneath God. He is not God's exact opposite because he doesn't have the power, the majesty, the authority of God. God alone is all-powerful. God is also all-wise. Nothing catches him by surprise. Even the episode of the Garden of Eden didn't catch him by surprise. For we read on in the New Testament that this plan of salvation that we are now the beneficiaries of was put in place from the foundations of the world. Before the world was, before the earth was, Christ is. We, we, we remember the words of Christ himself when he's being confronted by the Pharisees and they ask him, are you greater than Moses? Are you greater than Abraham? And he responds, before Abraham was, I am. That's not a mistaken grammar. He reminded them of who he is, the incarnate God. All powerful, all wise, all present, meaning at any point in time, at any point in space, no matter where you are on the face of this planet or other planets, as the case may be later on in life. However advanced we become as a society, there is no place you can hide. There is no time that you can go into that God is not there. Omnipresent in every category. How many gods can claim that? He is the creator of all that exists meaning that he can actually make something out of nothingness, as he did in the case of us, of the universe itself. I think back to Roman mythology, when supposedly, according to uh, their doctrine, the, the titan um, Prometheus supposedly sculpted our ancestors out of mud. Notice he had his building material beforehand. In our case, God... Created man out of the dust of the earth. Where did the dust come from? He also supplied that. God and God alone can create universes from nothingness. 
How's our definition of God? God is also the author of all that is life. When He created Adam, He breathed His own breath into His nostrils, and man became a living. Only life can come from life. Excuse me. Life can only come from life. I remember the story of spontaneous generation, how they tried to prove that the church was false through laying out stakes and seeing maggots appear or going to a swamp and waiting to see uh, tadpoles mysteriously pop out out of nothingness. Life can only come from life. Life only has one source. And that source, according to the Word of God, is God. God also keeps His promises. I hate to say it, but this is the biggest factor when it comes to who our God is compared to all the other religions around the world. Zeus could not maintain his marital vows. I won't... Other gods have issues with keeping their own promises. The God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only thing that he cannot do is that which is against his own nature. Our God delights in the making and keeping of promises to his children. So he is faithful and he's also righteous meaning that we are accountable to Him to be just as faithful as He is. Be holy as I am holy. That is a daunting set of words. Lastly, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. All ruling. All judging. So how does our God stack up to this definition? This is what God speaks of Himself through the pen of the prophet as well. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord God Almighty, I am the first and the last. For those of you in our Revelation study, guess where that comes from? It's consistent throughout Scripture. I am the first and the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. What is yet to come? Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and not foretell it from long ago? You are my witness. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know of not one. That's the voice of God himself. In other words, God is saying through the pen of the prophet, is there any other gods? I haven't heard of them. He's making a point. The omniscient does not share power with anyone. The God of Israel is declared to be the only God. He exists from outside of space and time. He is not confined by them, in other words. He is the only source of revelation, as we just read. He's the only person that can tell you what the future is going to hold. That's one of his defining characteristics and also the mark of who actually carries his word as a prophet. Translation, if you ever see somebody from the pulpit and they predict something and it doesn't come to pass, guess what? They're not speaking on behalf of God because his word will not return unto him void, but it will, complete, it will accomplish that for which he sends it out. Do not worship any other gods. This is one of the basic commandments of all the scripture from the book of Exodus. Do not worship any other gods, for the Lord 
This is the voice of God, the Lord whose name is Jealous. The ancient Hebrew word, Kanah. How many of you knew that that was a title that God gave to himself? The God whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now we're talking about not jealousy as, in, as that he wants that which he is not entitled to, but he is zealous for that which he is. He is zealous for the love of his children. He is zealous for the love of his creation. And he will not accept anything getting in his way. He loves you too much. He loves you just as he did in times past. Too much to allow any idol, any delinquency, any sin from getting in the way of his child. Now there's a problem there. The apostle writes to us in 1 Peter 1.13, With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because... If we represent the Holy One, we ourselves have to be changed. We ourselves have to be challenged. We ourselves only through His grace, His power, His strength, and His wisdom have to be holy just as He is holy. God is holy. The God of Israel delights in the making and keeping of promises to His children. He is holy. He is righteous. He is faithful. He is just but he does not suspend his holiness. Write this down. The God of Israel does not suspend his holiness. I am not aware of any point in Jesus' ministry where he forgives somebody and doesn't tack on the words at the end, now go and sin no more. He forgives frequently. He forgives quite often. He does not withhold the grace of God. That's one of the things that we as his disciples really need to learn. But he always challenges the, sin, the sinful to go and sin no more. Forgiveness is always coupled with repentance. You are not all right as you stand before God if you stand in him outside of Christ. It's only through receiving Christ's righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit that can, we can have a hope of standing before Him. To the wicked person, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or to take my covenant upon your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you, see, when you see a thief, you join with him. You throw your lot in with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue in deceit. You sit to testify against your brother, to slander your own brother's son. Here's the verse I want you to mark down in your copy of God's Word or write it in your flyleaf. This is Psalm chapter 50, verse 21. When you did these things, when you committed all these sins, when your heart was darkened in ignorance and you cast God in your image instead of being conformed to His and kept silent, excuse me, when you did these things and I kept silent, 
You thought that I was exactly like you. Because I did not immediately punish you, you thought I was condoning your behavior. Because you did not come down and immediately because God did not come down and immediately crush you to your face the instant that you had sinned, you thought that it was okay. But now I arraign you, I bring you before court. I arraign you and set my accusations before you. God always judges sin. How many of us as parents? Even when we know our children do something out of love, we withhold the judgment from them that we should probably issue. We withhold punishment because we love them. Here God is saying, I love you as a nation. I love you as a people. I called you from all the other nations of the world because of my love for you. And out of love, I didn't punish you. But you took that love and you twisted it and you contorted it. You disregarded it and you started to lie about me and my expectations of you. God always judges sin. So if God, does, if God always judges sin, if God does not suspend his righteousness, how do we have any hope? This is what the world has a problem with. This is what the philosophers of the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, and into today have an issue with, all of those centuries. This is what disrupts them. If God is holy and righteous, and if God is the judge of all that exists, and if we are ultimately accountable to Him, what chance do we have? There's a provision in God's Word. And you all know it. For God so loved the world. God loves us. He doesn't suspend His righteousness. A price has to be paid, for the wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We know this to be true. So how can a righteous God... Not condemn everybody who is sinful, namely all of us. But here's the answer, and it's that precious word love. The word agape, that word that means self-sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever but believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be what? Saved. The price had to be paid. But God is a God who loves. God is a God who challenges to be righteous, but God is a God who loves. So how did He answer His own righteousness? God, our God, among all the other stories of all the other religions on the face of the planet, only our God is righteous and only our God sacrificed for us. For God so loved the world that He sacrificed His only begotten Son on the chance that, to give the opportunity that, 
I should say in better words. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Way too often we forget verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who dig their heels in and refuse repentance. Those who dig their heels in and refuse belief. See, this is why it's so vital for us as the capital C church of today, not just Hylon, but every church out there that calls itself to be disciples of Christ. Way too often it is that we have people who are unregenerate in their behaviors, unregenerate in their own mind. They have a church membership, but not really saved. At least they're not showing it. And the people that still dress provocatively, that still uh, hold on to unrighteousness in whatever capacities that, that they can, that they laugh at what is vulgar, that they inhabit with their minds that which is unjust, that they are the persecutioners, that they are those who are prejudiced, that they are those who deny the call of the needy, that there are those who gossip, who lie, who slander. We forget about all those other sins in favor of the sin du jour, the sin of the day, when all have sinned and call short of the glory of God. The fact of the matter is, when we don't live like repentant people, other people get this mistaken idea that they are good with God when in fact they are in inimitable. They are an enemy of him. They live a life in enmity, which is what I was trying to say, against the very God who wants to save them. God does have expectations of his children. He could not be God otherwise. And we are called, if at least in our own homes and under our own roofs, to proclaim that fact. We do not want to be enemies of God, but we do want to be recipients of His grace. Not only that, but we want to be the messengers of His grace to others. To live that transformed life as an example of love, hope, peace, joy before those who desperately need it. To rescue those and to prove by the way that we live our lives the miracle that is salvation. The Christ of Calvary, the incarnate Son of God, this is what they were longing for. An escape from the, sin, from the law that brought death. A means to live righteously that which we cannot by our own human nature. The truth of the matter is the penalty of sin has to be paid. The wages of sin is death. But out of love, our God paid that penalty for us. And that's enough to make any Baptist shout. When you were enslaved to your sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set apart from sin, you have become the slaves of God under His control through the power of the Holy Spirit, in other words. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life, the way that you live your life before God. As a regenerate Christian, is evidence to you that you are saved. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God heals us of the sin nature through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We are now positioned by accepting that sacrifice, not only as His followers, but as His children, as the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. And again, our Christ-likeness is evidence of everlasting life. That's not just my theology on display for you. That's the Word of God. God is righteous. There is no God but God. And that God is a righteous God. That God is an all-powerful God. That God demands justice. He demands that His followers are not only made in His image, but they walk in reflection of that image. And yet He has given us this hope that if we but believe in the sacrifice that He's paid on our behalf, we are free from the chains that will condemn us. But church... There is a thread attached. And we read that in John 14, 6, when Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father. What? Except through me. This is your mandate. To know Christ and to make Christ known. There is no exemption. Christ is the one himself who guards the way before the throne of grace. Now if you're in Christ, you have direct access to that throne anytime you want to go. In fact, the authors of the New Testament go out of their way to say, you can now go boldly before the throne of grace to make your petitions known that you may receive mercy in your hour of need. Whatever you want. As a gatekeeper, Christ lets you in because you're in His image. But those who try to seek another pathway through their own works-based righteousness or for those who have integrated a false narrative of what salvation is, which is far, far worse. Those who misrepresent the gospel, which is far, far worse. Or those who go through a workaround, who try to satisfy their spiritual hunger by eating the plastic of false religion. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. This is why it's so important, church, that we get the gospel right. Someone's soul is depending on it. Someone that you love at home, in your neighborhood, at school, in other places. This is why it's so important that the challenge that is our God and the hope that He has given us through Christ, it is so important that we get this message right because someone's eternity depends on it. If you are in Christ, your hope is made sure. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. If 
anyone comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. The image of God we have to get right. The requirements of the gospel we have to get right. Our obedience to God we have to get right. But through all that, there always rings true these words. In spite of God's righteousness, there is also His love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall never perish, shall not perish, but have everlasting this is the hope they longed for for centuries. A hope that you have access to right now. And as those who bear His image, take that message and let others know Christ is here to save. And all God's people said, and Heavenly Father, as we come boldly before Your throne this morning, as we conclude the service of the Word, I hope that, Lord, You would make us the hope of others. That as we are challenged to live in reflection of Your Son, that we would not hesitate to take that message before others. To remind them of the God who is there to save. To lead a life that gives testimony to the God who makes a difference. To be willing and able always to give an account of the hope that is ours through you. Praise God for hope. If there are any within the sound of my voice that don't have that hope, that don't have that assurance of their salvation, if there are any who have yet to come to know you in that free pardon, let this be the day. Let this be the day that the angels ring out in chorus that a new child is born to the King. Examine our hearts. Comfort us now. And whoever needs that special embrace of the Master's hand, let today be that day. For it is in the most holy name of Christ we pray. And all God's people said, Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.